First, I want to say thank you to the BitBox 02 Bitcoin only edition for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, if you haven't heard of it yet, check it out. It's a very easy to use uh, hardware wallet. So a lot of beginners, it's, a, you know, it's suitable for a lot of beginners. And I know some that are really enjoying using it, but it's also got a lot of great features for the more hardcore among us, you know, like uh, connecting via Tor, connecting to your own node, coin control, rolling your own seed, all sorts of great features uh, and it's fully open source. So I've been having a good time with it. You can also use it with Spectre and Sparrow and a number of other wallets. If you would like to learn more about it and you should, because of course, as many of you know, and any beginners here, you need to be taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. If you don't custody your own Bitcoin, you are not Bitcoining. So if you want, want to learn more, go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire and you can get yourself 5% off. Aaron Siegel, what's up, man? Hey, how you doing, John? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Just uh, enjoying the post-holiday festivities here. Nice. Yeah, so um, you're a you know, relatively unknown Bitcoiner, although I suspect your profile will, uh, will grow rapidly. Uh, you've written two articles for Bitcoin Magazine. One is called Bitcoin Information Theory. The other one is called, remind me again of the title. Uh, it's the Pitfalls of the Inflation uh, Narrative. Right. Uh, yeah. Both really great articles. Um, and I hope, hopefully we get time to dig into both today. But one of the, you know, Bitcoin information theory, I think a lot of Bitcoiners have an intuition or maybe even, you know, thought more explicitly about that concept. But I felt that you explained it really well, put a lot of meat on that bone. And it's one of those things that in our various debates with the fiat ac academics and economists, they totally miss the value of a hard cap money. You know, the, 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 the tired argument of acquiring inflation for price stability um, is pervasive. And this is what they get on with. So I'm hoping today this conversation can shed some light on your writing and give, you know, myself and other Bitcoiners some, some more ammo when we have those debates with the, uh, the fiat economists. So uh, why don't you get us kicked off with a, a brief intro to yourself? Yeah, so just a uh, brief, brief background. My background's in, in finance. Um, so I've been an investor for lo longer than I'd like to admit. Um, over 16 years working in the kind of hedge fund community, investing in all sorts of different asset classes. Fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole a couple years ago. Fell super deep down the rabbit hole um, last year and really decided to put more, more effort into the community. And um, essentially, you know, the article that you're referring to was, was, as you just described, is something that has been marinating in a lot of our heads for, for some time, kind of this, the, all, there, there's so many interwoven narratives and connections um, with, with so many themes in Bitcoin. It's, it's sometimes very hard to, um, to whittle it down to one bit, big idea. And I think that's why some, sometimes it can get overwhelming when you're trying to convey these thoughts to um, a new pre-coiner or an altcoiner or, uh, or, or, just, or just really try to explain why this is such a fundamental shift in how we communicate value. And so um, I, I was trying to basically come up with a way of, of, of really filtering it down to its bare bones. And, and understanding at its deepest core, philosophically, 
and almost like mathematically, you know, why Bitcoin is so important. Um, one of the, the, the ways in which, you know, one of the routes that helped me kind of coalesce, coalesce around this idea was the concept of deflation and the concept of deflation not being something that we should be fighting. And of course, Jeff Booth's book, The Price of Tomorrow, um, really did an incredible job of articulating that idea. And, and this wasn't an idea that necessarily wasn't around. I mean, I think you can go back to like 2014, you have like Larry Page talking about this even, you know, and um, you know, there, there were around the periphery of the tech industry, there was actually kind of a lot of an, uh, an inherent understanding of this. I think for us, for most of us who are not technologists, who are not part of Silicon Valley, um, we were swimming in a little bit of a different ocean. And for me, I was swimming in the ocean of inflationists and Keynesian economics and all of those um, concepts that we didn't even think were concepts. We just took them as part of the air around us. And one of the reasons that you know Bitcoin spoke to me so passionately was it was something that I had a problem with for years. I ever you know I'd been investing in in uh, in markets before and, and during the great financial crisis, and I kind of saw all of the you know the out the outcome of, of QE. I saw the outcome of um, the commodity boom in 2005 and what that did to the housing market and, and all these different interplays. And, and then after the, the crisis, how, how the, you know, that narrative, and we can, we can talk about this later, but that narrative of inflation coming and, you know, the money printer being unleashed upon the world and how it didn't actually result in at least a tangible inflation. It didn't, you know, we, it ended up resulting in a lot of asset inflation. And I think we had a, had a, have a lot easier time differentiating the two now, but back then they were kind of hard to differentiate and it was very confusing. And I remember just sensing that something wasn't right and just sensing all of my preconceived notion, all of the economic courses I had taken, all of my understanding of inflation being this good thing kind of intuitively started to break down. But the problem is, is until you have an alternative, until you have something else that can offer a better way, it's really hard to embrace those ideas, that, that, that itch that something's not right. And so I, I think we all have felt that and have all come to Bitcoin from various ways. That's how I came to Bitcoin because it finally clicked that this is the solution. I mean, I think that's a huge differentiator between Bitcoin and gold, for example, because gold tells you gold bugs have intuitively understood a lot of these fundamental problems, but they never offered a solution. There was no way to, you, know, you can't go back. And once you go into a creditor fiat system, it is a one-way journey. And gold is part of the history that was untethered from that. And in order to rectify all of those problems, you need a solution made for the modern era. And gold is not that. So I, I think Bitcoin well, just really to, just just to yeah. stop you for a second, but that's part of the reason why because I was a gold bug before Bitcoin, you know, in the early two thousands, yeah. and it's such a depressing thesis to to adopt, you know, because basically what you're saying is all this is going to shit, and I need you know gold is going to be your fallback when things go to hell, you know, but mm -hmm. you're you're almost wanting you know to to actualize your investment thesis correctly, 
you're almost wanting that scenario to play out, you know, and now gold bugs will, will have, you know, different explanations and call it a hedge and that kind of stuff. But that was honestly my thought. And so, you know, I definitely agree that uh, gold, first of all, it's impractical. I don't think we're ever going to go back that direction, even if there is a, you know, a massive collapse of some kind, but it's certainly not a hopeful, you know, mind space or headspace to be in as an investor, because you're kind of hoping that the worst case scenario actually happens. And that's why Bitcoin is so powerful, because not only do you see it as a solution in the next stage of money, but you it's actually, you're hoping for something that's, you know, orders of magnitude better that we, than what we have right now, you know? And I think that's part of the reason why it influences people so strongly. 100%. And, um, you know, I've also had, I've also had my, my flirtations with gold in my, in, and I do believe that, that there is that inherent desire that once you start investing heavily in gold, you, you kind of are hoping for Armageddon in some yeah. way, at least from a fine, from the, your financial self. Um, but, but yeah, gold, you know, because gold doesn't offer a solution. Gold is just a protection. Gold is a bunker gold. Yeah. You know, that's why people associate gold bugs with the tinfoil hat and, and, and the, the sky is falling type mentality. Um, and then, and then kind of bringing that back, bringing the topic back to the whole point of this article, which is really centered around this concept of monetary entropy, which is that, first of all, gold does have monetary entropy, whereas Bitcoin doesn't. Gold is centralized. Bitcoin is obviously not. Um, and, and, and also importantly, gold uh, is not scalable in the same way in a digital world. Um, so, so anyway, like kind of getting back to your, your initial question um, as, as to kind of how I came across this, this concept. Um, yeah, so, so I would say Jeff Booth's concept of, of really um, help, helping understand why we're kind of spinning our wheels a little bit as we try to inflate in a world that naturally wants to deflate. And that is a really key understanding um, to both this article and I think just to Bitcoin in general and, and what you know Bitcoin can help the world accomplish and help us kind of basically get off of this hamster wheel. Um, because like I said before, you can't get off a hamster wheel um, that A, you don't even know you're on. And so that's first and foremost, Bitcoiners now realize that we are on this hamster wheel, but there needs to also be, in, Bitcoiners are, are very keen and aware of, of financial incentives and behavioral incentives. And you cannot tell someone, even once you show them the proverbial uh, matrix, you know, the, the old, if you, you red pill somebody or orange pill them in, in our, in our uh, nomenclature, um, there still needs to be an incentive to move to a different system. You know, and I think, um, you know, Peter Thiel talks about it in his, in his essay, Zero to One, how you need kind of a 10x improvement in a new technology to incentivize people to, to move off the, the previous one. And, I, and I'd like to come back to that actually, because I think that's, that's an important distinction as well. But just for those who haven't read the article, um, the, the basic thesis is that there's real world energy, you know, throughout history, the purpose of money has been a social technology. It's been a technology that allows humans to scale via communication of value. And the best monies do that with the least amount of uncertainty. In the, in the least amount of trust required. Because the more trust that is required, the more work must go into just 
maintaining that trust and not producing other value outside of that. So the, the real key to money is, is its ability to, to do something as a transmission mechanism that allows the actual value that's being produced by society to propagate. So money is this weird technology. And then when we think about technology, we think about things that do all this stuff, right? That make the world better by creating some new thing, new product, new service. But what's unique about money as a technology is its ability to get out of the way and to allow the value to really accrue in its most pristine form. So as I was thinking about that, and, and as well, I think tied to all of this is this debate about Bitcoin's energy consumption. And the straw man argument that's being proposed that Bitcoin is, is not only, you know, using way too much energy, which we all know, I think, to be false, just in its absolute, you know, sense, but it's also trying to hide the ball. Like I said, it's a straw man argument. You're, you're basically, you're, you're tying, you're taking the, the conversation away from its, its true variable. And the true variable is, what is the alternative? The alternative is a is a fiat inflationary based system and the incentives that that system um, basically perpetuates. And those incentives are extremely deleterious for uh, efficiency, for um, creating parsimon parsimonious use of resources. And it, it really incentivizes consumption and all of these things that are way, 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 like way orders of magnitude worse for human environmental uh, balance than, than Bitcoin. So you're talking about this like mi minor detail about Bitcoin's actual thermodynamic energy consumption, which is also falsifiable. Um, but you're really trying to shift the narrative away from the elephant in the room, which is the entire system's um, you know, horrible utilization of energy. So, so with, that, with those kind of background states in mind, I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of weave this all together and we all know that Bitcoin does use thermodynamic energy. You know, there is a cost of the monetary production, which is, which is very important to Bitcoin, both from a um, kind of inherent value and also from a security standpoint, of course. And, um, and then we also know that there's, um, yeah, I came across Claude Shannon's information theory. Now, Claude Shannon was a computer scientist from the 1950s, you know, I, I believe, um, Alan Turing and, and Claude Shannon are probably dubbed, you know, the two most influential people in computer science in, in, in terms of the development and step function in, in that in innovation there. And, and Claude Shannon's real uh, observation was information theory. And that's really what kind of clicked for me, which is, so the whole concept of information theory is that in a network, the whole point of communication is to reduce uncertainty. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, that's money. That's what money does. Okay, so money is information. And that led me down that, that thought process. And then when you kind of combine thermodynamic energy and the use that, of work that we produce in society, all of the work that we do, everything we do to, to produce goods and services and innovate and put food on the table and hunt and gather, all of the things that humans have done throughout history are various forms of thermodynamic en en entropy because you are doing work and in doing that work, the, the second law of thermo thermodynamics states that, well, the first law just for everyone's edification is you know, energy can either be uh, created or destroyed. 
And the second law is that entropy is always increasing. And entropy in its simplest form for the purposes of this conversation can be thought of as going from more order to less order, right? To something that can be um, known to something that dissipates and that is harder to quantify, to define. And, and, and in terms of physics, that is referring specifically to energy. Um, and over time, that arrow is completely true, which is that entropy is always increasing on a, on a kind of geologic sense and a cosmic sense. But there's a famous physicist, Brian Greene, who, who I love the term he uses, which is the entropy two-step, which he, when he, what he means by that is, yes, entropy is doing that, but it's doing that in a, in a nonlinear fashion. It, it, you know, in the scale of humanity, we are creating entropy, but we are also decreasing entropy with our actions and our behavior. So he talks about this dance where, you know, ener entropy goes up over the long term, but there's waves and, and there's waves of decreasing entropy. And that's basically all human action is our fighting of that long-term trend towards greater entropy with our ability to create little pockets of lower entropy. And so, so when you kind of combine this, this kind of physics concept, this very basic physics concept with this very basic information theory concept, you can kind of get to this equation where as we create more thermo, thermodynamic entropy, we are decreasing informational entropy. We are making order out of the information in the world or out of the data in the world. And when we are dealing in the physical world, as we've done for most of humanity's existence, um, it, it, it maybe is a little harder to make that connection. But as we move to a more digital society and information is exploding and data is exploding um, into our kind of consciousness all around us and we're creating all of this information, it becomes much more obvious that, that there's a connection between information and entropy. And once you make that further connection that money is a form of information, you can start tying this all together. So the big equation is thermodynamic entropy to the power of innovation, and I'll get to that in a second, minus monetary entropy equals negative informational entropy. And when I say negative informational entropy, I just mean lower entropy. Okay, so I know it sounds a little highfalutin and it sounds um, very abstract, but at its core, it's really just a great mental model. And, 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 and it's actually saying something quite simple, which is that as we do more work, we try to decrease informational entropy. And what helps us scale that, that is, is innovation. Technological innovation has always been humanity's main tool for scaling um, any, any type of progress, any type of work we do. And that's why, of course, technology can scale exponentially. Um, and that's why I've, in this equation, I've used it as a power law because it is something that can scale exponentially. What prevents that, you know, that is the natural state. That is what free markets want to do. The wrench in that equation is the monetary entropy. And, and for the purposes of this article, and just to keep things simple, I define monetary entropy as money, you know, information, you know, our basic form of uh, monetary technology that is inflated. And as long as you have an inflationary money, that monetary entropy variable will be a positive number. And it is subtracting 
from our from the innovation that we are creating. And that very much gets back to Jeff Booth's concept about how we are spinning our wheels that innovation is constantly def deflating, creating more for less. And we are in this system that has created incentives where th those interests are not aligned, where we cannot have a deflating money. Um, and, and I'll get to that in a second as to why that is the case. But so, so basically, anytime you have positive monetary entropy, which is an, any kind of inflating fiat money, you are degrading the system, the entire system's ability to progress and to create value and to express value and to create informational order out of thermodynamic disorder. I'll pause for a second because that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, um, I'm dialed. I mean, I think maybe just to characterize the relationship, what you're saying basically is the, the use of power, right? The, the thermodynamic entropy, increasing thermodynamic energy, right? Bringing power to bear on something is what allows us to order our world, right? Reduce entropy on the other side of that equation. And that is the, the creation of value. The, you know, that, that is how we come up with things that we then value, right? Taking you know, high, ent high entropy energy, power, you know, increasing, releasing thermo increasing thermodynamic entropy to produce greater order on the other side of that equation. I think it would be great for you to go into further detail about why the money matters as a mechanism of information transfer between those two sort of realms or sides of the equation. Well, I, th I think, first of all, you characterize it perfectly. And um, I think the best way to answer that is, is to first start with the presupposition that Bitcoin has zero monetary entropy. An asset that, I mean, I know Bitcoin is still has an inflationary um, algorithm, but we all know Assuming that, the that's on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, it, it is a asymptotically, you know, decreasing level of inflation and will eventually, its eventuality is that of a deflationary money. And the reason it is a deflationary money and the reason it has zero entropy um, is, is because it does not create misaligned incentives. It does not create any type of noise between one end of that uh, formula and the other. And that is, I mean, I think if you want to visualize it just in its simplest form, you know, you have a line of communication, you have various nodes within a network and they are trying to communicate value to one another. And I think you made that, that point in, in your last comment, you used the words um, that all of the entropy we release through our work is done in order to create value. That's, that's, that's essentially at its core what we're doing. And all of that a good money does is allow that to occur. And so you know, that's why you can't have entropy that's below zero. You can't have money that's creating negative uncertainty because that to, to state that monetary entropy is zero, you're saying that there is no uncertainty in the, in the transfer of that information. And that kind of gets back to what Claude Shannon was attempting to accomplish on a, you know, he came up with the concept of a bit, you know, and, and as you're transferring digital information from one end of a node to another, how much uncertainty is there? You know, if, if there's zero uncertainty, that communication is pristine. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that is a little bit hard for even Bitcoiners to accept because part of the problem is, is, is it then takes away from even discussing, like we can sit here and have this entire conversation and not even talk about the many, many positive attributes of Bitcoin as a network, as an asset, um, as a technology. If we understand just that main underarching accomplishment of having zero monetary entropy, we can, we, can, we can basically just relegate the conversation to humanity and all the value that we're creating naturally. And, and you talked about, you know, it's very interesting as I've come across, I'm a big fan of, of Hayek, you know, and he's, a, he, so Frederick Hayek was a, you know, libertarian, um, Austrian economist in his day. And he actually said something in the late 1970s, he was basically talking a lot about private money where, you know, where the bank, you know, what if you privatize the ability to create money and it wasn't in the hands of the government, the government didn't have this monopoly and, and that money would be created and be this kind of competitive product, right? And that banks would be incentivized to create good forms of money. And he talked about uh, a money that, that appreciated too much as being detrimental and how that couldn't really, he couldn't really see that, that happening. depreciated too much? That, um, no, that appreciated in its oh. own value. So, so, deflationary. so a deflationary money, yeah, deflationary yeah. money that was appreciating versus all other goods and services and, and other forms of, of money as being, um, you know, Bad. as being feasible. Yeah, he, he didn't see it as feasible. He said it could be a great investment, but it wasn't a good money. A good money needed to be stable. And maybe this is semantics. Maybe we're just talking about, you know, he, he's looking at a timeline. But in my mind, we've never lived through the monetization of a money at such a, in basically one generation, in, you know, in the span of one human being's life. So it's very hard for us to conceptualize that process of monetization. And I think Nick Sabo, for example, does a great job of discussing why a store of value must come first. Yeah. Um, but but the reason a but the reason I'm, I'm mentioning all of this is because um, I can perceive a situation in which a, a deflationary money has a so so the reason he says that a, a a money that's appreciating too too fast is detrimental is because he assumes that there are lots of debt in the society and if you, and if you do have debt and the money is appreciating versus that debt, the debt of course balloons relative to that money. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very problematic and, and no one's gonna wanna take out debt when tomorrow the value of that debt's gonna be great, way, way higher than it is today. But that's assuming two things. One, that's assuming that the debt is there to, to do something beyond create value. So if you had a steam money that was, that was there to allow that transfer of value and that communication of value. The only reason to take on debt in such a background state would be to create innovation. And the risk-free rate associated with any debt in that system would be just that difference in the value that you are creating. Now, of course, there's counterparty risk and you can add some kind of spread on top of that, but that's why I said it's the risk-free rate. So even someone like him, who is probably, you know, in most of the things he discussed, was a very staunch advocate for all of the things that a lot of Bitcoiners stand for, couldn't visualize a world 
beyond the world we live in. And, and that just speaks to how hard it is to get our heads wrapped around, you know, A, a concept of something like, you know, uh, hyper-Bitcoinization and in, in, in getting out of a system that is inflationary and inflationary in, in such a way that the, that the only way it perpetuates itself is through credit creation. And yes, that's true. If you have a credit society, a, a fiat creditor society, you cannot have a money that is inflating against that and maintain it through. They're, they're irreconcilable beliefs. So I, I think that is, and that led me down to the second article, which is, which is talking about the different types of inflation and how not all of it are the types of inflation that a lot of Bitcoiners like to discuss, which is like that kind of consumer goods inflation. A lot of it is just debt inflation, asset inflation, and all of these things, the, the common similarity they have is they create entropy. They don't necessarily increase prices all the time. And you're not gonna always see those price increases, um, especially because there's those deflationary forces you know, to, to the point of what guys like Jeff Booth talk about that are occurring underneath the surface. And, and that's the other thing that I think people miss a lot is that this, this monetary entropy is very insidious because you don't know what the value could have otherwise been. You know, we've had 50 years of this kind of, you know, information age renaissance and what could have been created, you know, what, what, what would the iPhone 12 be yeah. had it not been for the inflationary incentives that Apple was operating on? Yet, yes, they, they created this great deflationary technology, this computer of Apollo 11 spacecraft level computing power that we can all put in our pockets now and that's massively deflationary but it could have been way more deflationary had apple not been operating in this kind of cosmic inflation background that they're operating in because they have misaligned incentives too so even a technologist is dealing with incentives that that lead them to create some monetary entropy yeah so, so that's yeah I, I'm I'm fascinated. I mean, we'll never know, right? It's all speculation. Like, where would we be now if we didn't lose all that productivity or all that innovation, or if it was more equally distributed? You know, people tend to think that we're in a you know, it's a high tech world. We have Netflix, iPhones, and that you know, it's never been better. And that there may be truth to that, but how much better could it have been by now if we were on a different monetary standard? Ultimately, it's moot, right? Because this is the process of evolution of money. I mean. We couldn't have had it any other way, I don't think, you know, and we can lament how it evolved in certain eras in history, but it is what it is. And we should, you know, we can celebrate the fact that Bitcoin is here now to just absolutely rectify most of these, at least monetary problems. And it's amazing to think about what happens when a money like that is the dominant money that coordinates activity and the people use for their savings. I mean, how much cheaper will the world become? And then, you know, as you mentioned about the risk-free rate, I mean, when, when that's not being artificially manipulated, what is the cost, like, what is the bar that you have to overcome to actually create value in the world? Presumably, it would be higher than it is now, right? And so, you know, to maybe to use an overly trite example, like less plastic shit in the aisle of, of Walmart and more high-value things that actually amplify the quality of life and human flourishing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't think that's a difficult leap to make, but... You know, one thing I wanted to say about you were talking about Hayek and, and uh, his kind of difficulty in, in seeing how this could unfold or understanding this stuff. And I've come up, up, up against that in some debates recently. 
And this, it's such a misnomer or a misguided objective to want stable prices, stable particularly, because prices are information about preferences as they're communicated in the market in relation to the environment that people are acting in. And so when you have a constant supply money, and they'll even explicitly say this, they'll say, hey, if you have a constant supply money that, that in, totally inelastic, that can't be changed, then all price, uh, all changes and preferences must be reflected in prices because that's the only thing that can adjust. And it's like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the function of prices. You want anything else is noise as, as your article, you know, explores in greater depth. Like if you're willy nilly changing the supply of money out of some misguided objective of stable prices, you've introduced X, you've introduced non like usable information into that system right you've neutered the money's ability to actually communicate what it's intended to communicate which is the preferences right. as they change in relation to changing environmental circumstances and for you know they just they just can't appreciate that they look and say well you know it's too volatile it's like to take something from zero people owning it with a zero dollar price tag on it to eight billion people owning it with an eight you know whatever price tag you know per bitcoin there's going to be a lot of volatility as just as a function of the organic adoption process, but also because as people real, realize the asymmetric upside returns that that process permits or represents, then there's going to be all sorts of speculation and leverage and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, when it's fully distributed and it's just used as money, then my opinion is that the volatility will come way down. And the price differences will effectively reflect the deflation that's happening, or the, the, the deflation in the money will reflect the productivity in the economy. If the economy grows 5% a year, then the price of the money grows by roughly 5% to account for the new goods and services it has to price and transact. And that's your risk-free rate. That's your risk-free rate. That's your hurdle rate. Exactly. And then, you know, and, and they say, well, well, you know, we will, everyone will just be hoarding. You'll, you won't get productivity. It's like, what are you talking about? productivity is a function of the capital stock and, and time preferences, right? So who, look, what is the demand for capital? And does someone's belief that they can provide greater value to a market exceed the cost of the capital that they're forced, the, 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 the rate that they're forced to pay to borrow, to, to access capital, right? So you could easily see a circumstance where someone says, yeah, I can build a business that has a greater than 5% per year per annum return, you know, and, and as a result, access capital or justify the cost of capital, you know, that, that that's available to me. So it, I, I really feel like these, these fiat economists and even, you know, the good guys, as it were, like the Austrians, they really miss it on a couple of these points about what money really truly is. And again, they can be forgiven because a hard cap, totally inelastic money was never in the realm of possibility. I mean, that's a, it's a complete mind bender that that's even possible, that we have something in the human realm that seems to be able to credibly enforce an absolute scarcity. I mean, and this is what the shit coiners miss and everything, but that is, you know, as you say in your, um, your piece, I actually think it's a good paragraph to maybe read. Just give me a second to, uh, to find it. It's where you use the term rabbit hole. Uh, I think it's, it's the, okay, so there's a section, inflationary monetary systems obfuscate the value created by societal productivity. This simple statement cannot be overstated. 
Since the early decades of the 20th century, we have errantly accepted inflation as a first principle necessity of all free markets, but it is not the natural economic state in a broader historical context, and it is actually a fairly recent experiment. See Gibson's paradox, and Gibson's paradox refers to actually the lack of correlation um, between those, those two variables. But uh, I go on to say quite the opposite is true in terms of the natural state of human progress and free market capitalism. Once this problem is truly appreciated, the value of an absolute scarcity that is verifiable, immutable, and censorship resilient across time and space, as well as a stateless, as, as well as stateless, we suddenly realize just how incredible of an invention this truly is. That is the rabbit hole that is Bitcoin. Yeah. That's the one. And then the um, notion is the notion is subtle, but once understood, the gravitational desire to head to dive head first down the rabbit hole of myriad societal revolutions becomes an inescapable journey. Right. And that's that characterizes where Bitcoiners are at with just how mind bending this realization is and all the yeah. implications. And that, and that gets back to why a guy like Hayek had, had so much trouble because he his only alternative in his mind at the time, and which, of course, what else could he have was gold and gold didn't doesn't scale further. If it had if it had been able to scale society further without requiring centralization, which then in turn led to, to the inevitable incentives of of debasement and fiat uh, systems, uh, how could he see it, it scaling on the other side of it? The only way, and this gets back to the beginning of our conversation where it's kind of gold bugs didn't have a solution. They just had a way to profit or hedge against these, these negative outcomes. And the only way that gold could kind of respond to such a situation would be to increase in value. And, but, but what he misses, and there's a little bit of an apologist aspect there too which is that like you're you're not un unwilling to accept the fact that debt is what perpetuates inflation like debt is really the incentive creator um and and it is again once once you kind of go down that path there is really no other there's no way to turn back and that's why the solution has to come from outside that system but you made a really great point before talking about port. You made a comment about porting, right? And how, you know, hoarding itself is this, such a negative connotation to it. Um, and how, and, and I think that speaks to just how far off the rails we've gone in terms of basic economic principles. There's yeah. one way to create value. There's only one way, like to create incremental new value. It is to have excess consumption. Okay, so you need in order to create further improvements in any civilization, whether it's two people on an island or 8 billion people, there needs to be excess consumption. There needs to be savings, and that, of course, leads to investment. And more importantly, that leads to specialization. And this also gets back to this kind of, I think, misconception about money. We think that humans were kind of bartering, and, and in these kind of tribal states, we were just kind of trading goods and, and services and that's and then eventually we decided to scale by creating some form of money that allowed us to create a medium of exchange right and it was a, a it was a way to create a a, a way of, of 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 aligning preferences that weren't aligned previously like let's say i had five cows and uh but the guy was trying to you know buy something from didn't want five cows so you know, they're, you know, it's logical to kind of jump to that conclusion, 
But if you actually kind of look at the anthropological evidence, and again, this is what kind of Nick Sabo really did a great job of talking about in his article shelling out, is that store of values always come first. You know, there's, there's an inherent desire to store excess value. And, and that needs to come first. You need to have excess savings. You need to have a savings technology first and foremost before you can then specialize and before you can then have a medium of exchange. Because a medium of exchange allows you to take that excess savings and say, I no longer need to just hunt and gather every day. I can now develop a new skill. And that's what innovation is. And then that creates value and that creates new excess savings. And that allows somebody else to develop another new skill and so on and so forth. And all these nodes start to uh, interact and create a network effect, which is that of, of economic uh, value scaling and money just allows that to happen. And at some point in history, centralizing that process had its purpose, but we've kind of reached the limits of that. And again, this gets back to why a guy like Hayek can't really fathom what comes next because we didn't have a, a savings technology at the time that could scale into this next epoch, right? Um, so that is, and that gets back to your point about like, you need, I mean, stability is not necessarily desirable nor possible nor plausible in when you're, when, when you're moving to a new system. And um, if a savings vehicle, a savings technology, which at its core is what Bitcoin is, um, is a necessary step and it must come before the, that medium of exchange. And I think even more specific to medium of exchange is medium of specialization, you know, the division of labor. And let's look at the way our society is shifting now with the digital age we are in, where there's just so many different ways to specialize and to scale and to, in, in all of these kind of connections that are forming are no longer like business to consumer. They're no longer, you know, that was kind of the innovation of the internet, which was like a matchmaking system. It was a matchmaking network um, that still, and that's why it, it really lent itself to a lot of centralization once, once we kind of better understood that because it was a, a seller in a, in, in a matching a buyer. Whereas so much of the social innovation that's occurring now and will, that will likely occur in the future is going to be the types of technologies that are peer to peer. And um, I think Lynn Alden actually had a great interview recently where she differentiated, uh, you know, network effects. And, you know, I think an important distinction that a lot of people don't think about when they talk about the term network effect, they just use the term very generally. But there are two different types of network effects. And there is that, that peer to peer, which is that very classic telephone example, where, you know, you have two users, you have one, one telephone, one user of that telephone, well, it's useless. You have two, and okay, it, it does, it's, not an, it's not scaling exponentially anything, but it starts to have some utility for those two users. And then, it, and then it scales. I believe the formula is N, which is the number of users minus one times N divided by two. And that is a peer-to-peer -peer network. A business to business or a seller to buyer network is just the number of buyers and the number of sellers multiplied by each other. And if you do the math there, the first form of network effect scales much faster than the buyer to seller network effect. And most of the innovation we have seen in the past 30 years has been the latter form 
of, of network building. And I, and I think what's interesting about that is some of that is just kind of the nature of the evolution of, of technology. And we're maybe entering a new phase where we are step functioning into an even more interesting type of network effect that requires immediate, like a currency that can allow people to specialize more, that is in the digital realm, that is fully decentralized. But also, I think some of the reason that occurred was because all of that innovation was swimming in a sea of inflation. And inflation systems incentivize debt, they incentivize capital, they incentivize short-termism and, and high time preference and the misallocation of capital and all those things which are essentially just specific examples of monetary entropy that, we, that, are, that are the basis of that formula. You know, so that the types of network effects that can really blossom are those that have that more centralized capability because the incentives of the underlying system are more profitable to develop that kind of rentier system where you can insert yourself between the buyers and the sellers. And yes, the outcome still might be net, a net deflationary outcome, but it is not nearly as deflationary as, as a potentially peer-to-peer -peer system, as a fully decentralized system would be. And it is not nearly as deflationary as it could have been if we were in a different underlying system where all of that capital, all of that excess savings is not being reinvested back into future innovation, but rather into gaming the existing system instead. Yeah. And I think a great example of that, for example, is Amazon. We think of Amazon as this great deflationary force, right? Because now we can go and I can, you know, you and I need something, maybe even, you know, where you are right now, like, you know, you need something and literally it arrives the next day at no additional cost. And um, it's the lowest price you've seen and you have all this pricing transparency and all these beneficial things of online shopping have all been kind of um, pinpointed into one specific marketplace that is the Amazon marketplace. And that is deflationary. But what people don't realize is that that comes at a cost. The reason that Amazon can do that is because they actually created an, a truly deflationary innovation, which was AWS, which is Amazon Web Services. And what Amazon Web Services did was it said, okay, all these people need, you know, there's all this data, there's all this information that people want to use. They don't want to have to store it on their own, um, you know, on, on their own network and their own databases. So we'll create a system that maximizes the efficiency of that and that frees up capacity and is more parsimonious to people's utilization of their data. That is actually deflationary. That is actually, you know, an innovation that is, you know, truly deflationary. And it's extreme, as a result, it's extremely profitable as it should be. And they took all of that deflation and they reinvested it. They exported it into this retail business, which is allowing them to scale by centralizing uh, network distribution, which is not an inherently, you know, easy thing to create deflation out of. You know, it requires massive, massive amounts of investment and centralization in order for them to provide those services for us, in order for them to destroy all of their competitors. So to me, that is where you're living in an inflationary world and all of that deflation that is being created is actually just being recycled back into these inflationary processes. And if you actually take it a step further, what is the end game for Amazon in their retail business? You know, 
not to sound trite, but it's, you know, kind of world domination of retail and logistics. And how is that deflationary? That is very centralized. That is a lot of pricing power. Um, they may continue to subsidize it. They may continue to subsidize the consumer in that way, but it's not, that's not deflationary in its truest form. So that, that gets into some of the nuance when we talk about all these innovations and all these things that seem great. But again, how much greater could they have been if the incentives were different? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you know, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, you know, you, you brought up truth and just, you know, maybe to put a final pin in the, in the well, maybe not a final pin, because I want to ask you something about this, but, you know, prices, the higher fidelity that the money can carry the information regarding preferences of people's action, the better, right? The market will select for that because it'll allocate resources more efficiently, right? And that's what the, the market will select for. And so that, you know, to maybe bring it into the philosophical realm a bit, although not really, but that is the propagation of truth. That's what it's supposed to be. And like, anytime you try to dilute that, you're saying like, oh no, let's dial down the truth a bit, you know? And so the, of course the question emerges, well, who's incentivized to dial down the truth, right? Who's incentivized to muddy the water? And it, of course it's the, the people that uh, benefit from seniorage of, of money production, right? Uh, and the, the ability to allocate the value, I guess, of the truth that's attempting to be propagated, they take off a slice of that and then they become, you know, the purveyors of that truth and the market values that truth and therefore the value accrues to them. And so again, like I just, I think it's so funny that, uh, you know, people who think about this kind of stuff full time don't realize how insanely, you know, unique and how much of an innovation it is to have like a closed system so that the price signal can be of the utmost fidelity. I mean, literally cannot be more, cannot have more integrity in communicating the truth of the preferences of the, of the behavior of people acting in that market. So I think the market selects for a money like that because it more efficiently allocates scarce resources. And then of course, individuals select for that because it allows them to preserve the value of their sacrifices, their time and energy sacrifices. So you put those two things together. I mean, the incentives, it's going to happen, right? You know, barring some catastrophic, catastrophic change, it's going to happen. But back to what you were, you know, talking about just then, I'd like to dig in because, you know, the environment and climate change and all that kind of stuff is a very prevalent topic today. And I see one of the major problems or one of the reasons why that issue, to whatever extent it actually exists, I know there's a lot of debate on that, but I think we could at least agree that there's, there's excess environmental degradation happening today. Even if the climate change stuff is nonsense, there's, we're just, I think there's excess environmental degradation and waste. Um, and I do think the biggest cause of that is the dilution of the messages that occur between you know, human action and the environment, let's say, and how they get propagated, right? So how changing information in our environment uh, gets put, gets how human behavior is influenced by that and then how that gets propagated by human behavior into the broader market. I think, and that's a poor, that's an insufficient explanation, but I think that is the cause for a lot of our environmental issues as they exist today. And so I'm going to read a brief paragraph from, from your piece, and hopefully you can expand on it. But it says, if money is not permitted its intrinsic capacity to absorb this scarcity, 
other resources will need to fill that void. This increases the cost of information production because there are fewer and fewer sources of increasing thermodynamic entropy from which to convert into decreasing informational entropy. Consequently, the system will experience a drag on productivity. Such an environment also manifests hidden costs like environmental externalities and systemic fragility, which are easily cemented into chronic problems that become difficult to fix. Now, I know that paragraph kind of covers off all the inefficiencies mm -hmm. that are created from money, but I'd love to get your take on specifically kind of the environmental stuff. Yeah, well, so, you know, env environmental questions always kind of come back to this core notion of resource utilization and, and how to efficiently use our, the resources we have available to, to ourselves. You know, I think one of the things that I certainly have realized, and I think a lot of, I don't want to speak for other Bitcoiners, but I think from my conversations and all the readings um, that I've done is, is a common thread amongst all Bitcoiners is this realization that energy is not actually scarce. It's our ability to harness it that is the scarcity. And when you, when you are inflating your money and you're forcing people into consumption, by definition, you're taking interest rates down to zero, it's, it's doing multiple things because it's, it's decreasing that, that excess savings, which creates a lot of scarcity that, that wouldn't otherwise exist. And what I mean by that is when there's, when there's that excess savings and that excess capital, it, it incentivizes investment and innovation and low time preference thinking. And low time preference thinking is paramount to, uh, to dealing with an environmental issue, right? Because environmental issues occur on a scale of multi-generation, right? So problems we face and the problems your grandparents faced are going to have impacts that compound over time and that affect our children and their children and so on. And if we don't care, if, if we are so focused on the here and the now, then the cost associated with, the, with decisions that impact future generations will, will not matter to, to the society. So first and foremost, you have to fix that incentive. You have to fix the time preference incentive and so that's one aspect where Bitcoin affects that. And again, to your point about, I mean, we don't have to get into to all the various in, environmental narratives and the ESG noise and all that stuff. But I think we can all agree, like you just said, that there is environmental degradation. You know, there are tons and tons of habitat loss and eco ecological damage going on um, across the world, species. Um, extinction events and things like that that are are clear whether or not you are, are a proponent of, of global warming or any of those other aspects. But um, what I meant also about the, the concept of, of forcing other people, you know, forcing greater thermodynamic entropy through existing resources is, again, that gets back to asset inflation, where First of all, you're you're not expending capital in a uh, with with a lot of stewardship because you don't need to because uh, inflation inflation sorry interest rates are at zero essentially and so the the bar for capital returns is very low so squandering resources has a very low cost and also you are going to find that savings technology any way you can whether that's through 
acquisition of, of resources, natural resources, or the acquisition of land. I mean, how many billionaires across this country have been accumulating land for the last 50 years in agriculture uh, capacity? Um, and, and there's a lot of great, I think, I'm trying to remember the, the guy's handle on Twitter, uh, Untapped Growth, I think, where he's, he's done a great job of talking about the degradation we've done to our capacity to produce food. The yeah. very basic necessities, you know. So um, again, and that gets back to the time preference conversation. So um, the other way is is speaking of land is the accumulation of real estate, and this creates all sorts of other problems because it incentivizes quote unquote hoarding of real estate rather than putting that capital into something that can actually have productive returns over the long run, and it also perpetuates the existing capital stock over any potential new capital stock creation, right? So no one, if you know that in perpetuity, you will continue to get a great return just by owning some property, some real estate property, why would you invest your capital in, in a risky endeavor, a quote unquote risky endeavor to produce even greater potential capital returns when you don't need to, when, <laughs> When you're, you're, the bar is already set very low because interest rates are zero and real rates are negative. Um, the system is incentivizing the inflation of assets like real estate. Why would you put your capital into another endeavor? So it, it, that's you know, a very specific example of that kind of misallocation of capital. And that very capital could have been used to do something like harness the very energy we're talking about that is truly actually abundant but that we squander through our, our activities within the system. Yeah, let me- I don't know me, if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanna pull on this for a sec. So I'd love to get your thoughts. So, and again, this is one of the things just so surprising doesn't get much, well, maybe not surprising in this day and age, but like, I think it should get much uh, more discussion in the mainstream, but the interest rate is a function of the capital stock and the time and risk preferences of the borrowers and, borrowers and lenders, right? And that, from that emerges an interest rate, whether it's a singular one or you know different ones for different time periods in different places or whatever. So if you have artificially low interest rates, then those borrowers and lenders are getting untruthful signals about how much capital there is for investment, how you know, for consumption, for everything, right? It just it completely throws off everything. And so an aspect of that, and there are many uh there are many outcomes or, or consequences of that scenario, but one is that you get a lot of capital destruction, right? Because people say, hey, the, the interest rate is telling me there's this much capital stock. And I do my economic calculation to, to say like, that means that this amount of investment can yield this amount of return and, and by these numbers, it works out. But because the interest rate is artificially manipulated, that means that a lot of those people making those calculations from the get-go, those calculations are going to turn out to be wrong, which means they're going to make investments that are not sustainable, that cannot be productive, that cannot persist, and that capital will have, in, in some part, have been wasted, right? Unnecessarily so. So, and this is, you know, this is obviously only permissible by having a money that's centrally controlled, whose, whose supply can be inflated and interest rates can be manipulated as a result of that. How do you think about, and I, 
I don't think it's that there's that much point in like imagining what the world would be like if we were on a hard money now and regretting how we got here. But how much do you think right now, how much capital of the capital stock do you think is being destroyed versus how much is being replenished by just the, the era we're in technologically? So, and, and that's, as I think you discussed in your article, that's part of how the powers of be, let's say, have gotten away with these things is because the, the technological deflation has allowed them to hide and, and obfuscate a lot of the, you know, the theft and the capital destruction that they've gotten on with. But I just, I'd love to get your, your comment on just capital stock, capital destruction and, and where we are in that. I mean, is it too much, even, even with the technological deflation, is it too much? And are we not just completely destroying our capital stock as a society right now? And as a result, we're seeing so many problems emerge, be they environmental or social. I think the biggest problem, the biggest destruction that is being perpetuated by low interest rates, um, because as you said, essentially when you, when you keep interest rates artificially low, what you are essentially doing is creating an environment of negative real interest rates which is creating a massive incentive to consume and not spend and to create, um, which in turn creates even less of, an ex of excess savings and less of an existing capital stock uh, from which to pull on in the future, which affects resiliency and fragility and all of those things that, again, I mean, as, as, as we're starting to see with, with COVID, things shut down and became and started to unravel very quickly in terms of supply chain impacts, in terms of people's ability to withstand a, uh, a shock to their income because there, was, there were no excess savings. There was zero resiliency in the system. And so when you're dealing with a, a system like that that has perpetuated itself through credit expansion and that eventually that credit expansion has two, two main incentives. It incentivizes those close to the source of the credit creation, which is in this case, in, in the case of almost all of the situations we're, we're discussing here are uh, central banks and the governments um, that, that control them um, both directly or indirectly. And those who are close to those sources, right? So the, the Cantillon effect type of, uh, Parties and, and this gets back to the centralization of, of that because when you when you create a system that allows that has a great savings technology and that incentivizes the true allocation of capital based on the desire to consume or spend and where to free where that interest rate like you're referring to which is I think related to a very basic concept called state law which was like invented back in the 1700s which is the basic concept of how interest rates are set by the demand for consumption and supply between producers and consumers. And um, when, when you basically uh, put yourself in between those two counterparties, like you said, you create these really perverse incentives and, and, by, and, and, they, and they really compound on one another. So once you go down that route of, of fiat creation, and credit creation, you cannot go, it requires even more Terry printing in order to perpetuate it. Because once nobody is, is, is maintaining any level of excess savings, all of the capital stock becomes very centralized. 
um, there's a scarcity of capital. It's not, it's not really uh, spread out among society. So there's pockets of capital and there's actually pockets of massive excess capital, which is something we're seeing right now, which is the banking system itself has tremendous amounts of excess liquidity. It doesn't even know what to do with it, but it's not getting to where it needs. It's not getting to any kind of end user that can make productive use out of it. Um, so literally you could, you could light it on fire and it wouldn't change anything. Um, but, but, you know, if you had had instead an incentive, a system that incentivized the excess consumption to be saved, one, you would have a, a higher uh, risk-free rate that would further incentivize productive use of capital out of necessity. So this is where it becomes vicious or virtuous, right? Once you go down, once you make that choice, once you kind of go make a choice of what system you're going to operate in, um, you kind of, there's no turning back, right? So, um, and then of course, it, it also incentivizes the actual you know, purveyors of the arbiters of that system, who are the central banks, to abuse it eventually, right? I mean, all, in all fiat systems, eventually that, that power gets abused. So you have kind of two forces, one who are the, the forces who are around that central bank, who are gaming it and making, using regulation, uh, using rentier behavior, uh, using their ability as banking institutions to create um, a moat around that capital. Um, and of course, gaming it, which is through, through different mechanisms of financialization and uh, asset inflation, because you have the current stock of assets. You have the current stock of capital. You don't need a new stock of capital. You, there's, there's an excess amount of that in your hand. Whereas everybody else suffers from that. And so it creates these imbalances. But to your point, how do you rectify those imbalances when everybody who's part of that system has an incentive to perpetuate it? And this is why the solution has to come externally. There's no other, I mean, there's, there's, it is no coincidence that Bitcoin kind of grew from, from a very organic process completely outside the existing system. Because the existing system has no incentive, you know, incentive to to allow Bitcoin to uh, to, to grow and prosper. Now it, it kind of did that despite the existing system. And, and at some point we can we can talk about this, but that's a whole different conversation about how at some point that that system will look will look to fight fight against that because it will be a, a threat to the system. But um, yeah, I, I think the capital destruction is is really the biggest thing. And the, the biggest part of that that I think gets lost on people is what low interest rates do to the future. And this is why it becomes self-perpetuating because a low interest rate is essentially a low discount rate. Okay, so you're taking future uh, earnings and you're discounting them to the present at a lower rate and therefore inflating the, pre and inflating the present value of that of those earnings, those asset values, whatever they may be, whatever those productive assets might be. Hey, you're pulling and so you're essentially, forward. yeah, you're stealing from the future. And I talk about that in the second article. And I mean, that is a, a type of inflation that we don't really talk about. It's alchemy, essentially. You know, you're, you're, you're basically borrowing from the future, but it would be borrowing if you were ever going to pay it back, but you can't 
because you're hollowing out that very future that you're relying on to borrow against. Credit, the, the invention of a, of a credit system in humanity only arose once technology started to take off. Because for, for many years, and um, you know, who talks, uh, who writes really well about this, uh, you've all known Harari. Like he wrote two books, you know, Homo sapiens and Homo deus. And there's a part of, I can't remember which book it was, but there was a part of one of those books where he, it really impressed upon me a very kind of obvious point, but that it was, wasn't obvious until I heard him say it, which is that, you know, why did we start inventing credit? You know, where did, it was essentially came from confidence in the future. You know, that, that the future would somehow be different from the present in, in, in a better way. And once that happened, you could borrow against that, right? And as long as the future continued along that path, you could continuously roll that debt and hopefully use that debt to create something of value to improve that future even further. And that will allow for even more debt capacity and more on it. And, and, and that's why these things be, become perpetuating, right? Um, but when you were doing it to such a degree that you were hallowing out that future in the same way, that's why I love that guy uh, um, with the handle untapped growth, because the, what we are doing to the soil is a very analogous uh, example of what we are doing to our kind of future economic prospects. Because if you continuously borrow from it without doing anything in the interim to create, to replenish the capital stock that you were utilizing, you will continually just have to borrow and borrow and borrow to replace the value that would otherwise be created. You're not actually creating value, you're just borrowing from it. And that only works if we sell ourselves the story that the future will always be better. And what, I, what concerns me is that eventually people will stop believing that narrative. Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of things there, but it's so, you know, it's so obvious and simple if you artificially lower the interest rate you're bringing the future forward it's very high time preference behavior and as money is the prime incentive director of of humanity or at least people that live in dynamic markets you're obviously going to get high time preference behavior imbued in the people that are forced to be subject to those incentives right versus if you let the market forces take over they will put a truthful or a more organic price on the future and how much of it gets brought forward and that presumably with a money like Bitcoin will instill a far lower time preference in the people that operate in that market because they're subject to incentives that are just as powerful. They're just exact, pre precisely counter, right? So it's, it's so obvious how this stuff affects the culture and people's behavior and all that kind of stuff. But uh, almost philosophical- I have one thing to that, by the way, John. One yeah. thing to add to that is that it's obvious and it's also inevitable. Like, if this can only move in one direction, it's creating such imbalances that definitionally, those imbalances will event eventually not be sustainable. Mm -hmm. And what's so important about that realization, and I, I can't, doesn't necessarily tell you as an investor how to time it, but it, what it tells you is that for something to, if, if there's something that can actually alter, offer an alternative to that system, that, as long as that alternative can survive to see that day, then it is also inevitable that that system will be what we end up with on the other side of that outcome. And that is why I think, you know, I know uh, 
Nassim Taleb is not uh, well thought of right now in the Bitcoin community, but his book, Anti-Fragility, I think was so uh, inspiring for a lot of Bitcoiners because I, I think that is the killer app of Bitcoin is it's anti-fragility. Because again, what Bitcoin does is it's a savings technology that allows value to, to propagate in the way it naturally would. So it is just, just this pristine, um, clear connection. And as long as it can survive all of the instability that the alternative system is, is perpetuating in the meantime, in the interim, it is an inevitable off-ramp. And, and I think that's what is so misunderstood. By, and, and I think we're witnessing it right now firsthand with all of the, the, the hash power that's moving out of China, which is that we've had 50% of the hash power essentially, or 35, 40%, depending on different people's estimates, move offline and Bitcoin has survived. Bitcoin is, I think for, for a period, maybe we were mining blocks like every 30 minutes. Now we're back to essentially every 10 to 15 minutes. Like it's just taking a long. It is maybe not in its healthiest right now, but it is surviving and it is surviving in a very robust way. And it will, of course, take from this experience and learn from it and become even more resilient. You know, all that, as we know, in this specific example, all that hash power is going to migrate to other places that, that make such an event in the future less and less likely. And that is, is so important because, again, the system is just killing itself. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I laugh about it, but like it's really tragic, actually. But um, and as long as Bitcoin can survive during that process and grow and, and, and learn from it and respond to all the various attack vectors that occur along the way, it is inevitability. So, so to me, if you were going to say like, what is you know, people talk about their favorite attribute of Bitcoin, like what is you know, to me, it's the enter fragility because that is what's going to kind of guarantee. Uh, that inevitability. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm going to read a passage and ask you a question. It's related to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, but it said, the more we chip away at our future's building blocks, the more we must hope for new blocks to be constructed to replace those missing from the edifice, lest the foundations be begin to crumble and decay. If we lose fa faith in the future, the entire illusion evaporates. We are then pressured by an imperative to constantly sell our present selves increasingly seductive visions of future prosperity, no matter how vague and unsubstantiated they may be, and no matter how much our current behavior reduces the probability of such a fate materializing. No wonder we live in the age of pump and dump, the story stock, the SPAC, uh, blank check companies that literally derive their value from the ability to sell a story about a potential future asset that, that does not yet exist, and many other examples of our escalating abuse of the future. With that kind of idea in mind, and also you know related to everything we've been discussing, almost philosophically, this is what my question was going to be. But like, what is a negative interest rate? If we accept that you know artificially low interest rates are bringing the future forward, you know, robbing the future for the present, and high int natural interest rates are are the opposite. It's, it's that proper equilibrium. It's an organic equilibrium. What are artificially negative interest rates? What, what's the meaning of those? So there's, there's negative. Yeah, I, I don't I, I, I don't think anyone has an answer as to what that would look like if we actually lived in a world. You know, it's one thing where, where Europe has flirted with that and the ECB has flirted with some, some negative nominal interest rates in, in various economies. Um, it, it's a 
an outcome that I think most central banks agree, at least on the surface, they agree that it's undesirable. And the reason it's undesirable is more mechanical in nature. You know, our current system isn't really structured to allow for it. Um, but we've already seen what negative interest rates on a, in, a, in a real sense, when I say, and just, just to make sure where everybody's on the same page with these definitions, when I refer to negative real interest rates, I just mean nominal rates minus the rate of inflation. And we can argue about what rate of inflation we should be using and what's real and what's not real. But um, we all agree that there's some level of inflation, whether it's 2%, 5%, 10% um, in terms of you know, one's cost of living or one's hurdle rate. You know, from an investor standpoint, that that inflation rate, CPI might be less relevant. It might be, it might be your hurdle rate. So for example, my my background in finance, especially in recent years, has been in corporate debt. And you know, so so we are in the high yield market, we lent to junk, you know, quote unquote junk bond companies and um, really, you know, struggling companies. And and by the way, that's that's one aspect I've seen. Um, in, in, in recent years, where all of these incentives get completely out of whack and you know perversely incentivized, which is I see many companies that are companies that should have filed for bankruptcy years ago that have been able to uh, basically you know just kind of string themselves along quarter after quarter and roll their debt um, because there's someone out there who is willing to lend to them because there's someone out there who is starved of yield. And, um, and that is because real interest rates are negative. And what is their alternative? Um, well, you even so, look at the micro strategy sales, you know, and we all love Sailor and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, he's obviously benefiting from that very circumstance. For sure. For sure. And he's doing it, but he's doing it. He is a borrower, you know. So in an inflationary world, especially one with real, uh, with negative real interest rates, lenders are you know, the cuckold, you know, like they're, they're the ones getting left as the bag holders right. and the borrowers are the beneficiary. You should borrow. So sailors doing a speculative attack on the dollar with the most pristine asset ever created. He should do that all day. Yeah. He, I mean, obviously he's got a fiduciary responsibility, but he's got this, this fiat cash flow that he's earning. He's got a very stable software business that he's earning this fiat cash flow that is um, reliable and, and it's, if he doesn't do something with it, he's just accumulating excess cash in his treasury. And this gets back to the incentives of the system. So even he, someone who very, is, is, is very aware of how, you know, how ridiculous these incentives are, he's going to play the game because he's, yeah. he's, inside that, he's inside that system. And he will you play know, it until there's no game to play. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, but you know, it's funny. We, we always talk about fiduciary responsibility in business and you know, shareholder stuff, but it's, I wonder when the, the narrative that it's a fiduciary responsibility to own Bitcoin or even to spec attack the dollar for with Bitcoin, like when will that become a fiduciary responsibility, right? Because there's, there's, an I think it already has in life insurance. I think a lot of life, ins it's interesting that a lot of life insurers are, were the first true institutional investors to start investing in Bitcoin. Right. Um, and the reason is because they have, these huge fiat liabilities um, that are very long duration that are going to come due many years from now. And even if inflation is only 2%, well, a 2% inflation rate in over 50 years completely destroys that capital. 
Yeah. Um, and when, again, when there are very few alternatives from, from which to, to, to earn a yield above and beyond that, that inflation rate, whether it's two, five, 10%, um, it becomes, like you said, a fiduciary duty to make that long-term bet. And it's interesting to me for two reasons. One is that of all institutional investors, I would say, you know, life insurers and kind of pension funds and sovereign wealth funds are the kind of lowest time preference types out there. You know, hedge funds, you know, my, you know, my fund included that I, um, and a lot of my peers who are in the hedge fund industry have a very high time preference. You know, they, they got to get returns quarter to quarter. They got to bring on new investors. And just like companies, like a lot of companies are very, you know, are gaming each quarter. They want their stock price to go up. They have the executives of these companies have stock options and they have to hit certain hurdles. And, you know, they're, they're thinking in a very short sighted manner. Um, it's interesting with a guy like Michael Saylor, who can really think very long term about this because he has over 50% control over, over his board. Um, so he has that luxury, but I, it's very rare to have that kind of leeway. But was, you know, so it's, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about all this institutional adoption that's occurring. And that term institutional is, is, is I think, a little overused and a little vaguely used. I mean, sure, family offices and hedge funds were, are all buying in. If you look at all the on-chain data, all those kind of short-term whales that have been selling recently, a lot of them are those types of investors. They have high time preference. They see uh, momentum roll over and they sell and they're just kind of trading around this vehicle. Um, but what's going to be really interesting is I think what you're hinting at, which is when the fiduciary uh, incentive of very long duration investors becomes so overwhelming that to not invest in Bitcoin would be, you know, Violation massively. Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. And and I think Plan B has a great chart that he put up in his um, in his stock to flow um, cross asset model, or, or it may have been an, another article he wrote where he was he was talking about efficient um, market theory. Yeah. Um, which is that, you know, well, if, if, if the market is really efficient, if all inf available information, um, you know, allows, allows market participants to, to price in um, the fair value of an asset, why is it that the stock to flow model works every halving period, right? Or at least historically has worked. Um, and, and he was saying, you know, he had all sorts of interesting explanations as to why that might be the case which are not relevant to this conversation, but what was relevant was he, he showed this chart of just the simple math. If you are an investor and just, just the asymmetric nature of the risk reward profile for Bitcoin, you know, it either will be the money, you know, it either will be the base layer money of the future or it won't. And even if it isn't, it, it will probably still have some savings vehicle kind of value, some network effect um, that is somewhere well above 100 billion, 200 billion, even 600 billion, you know, where, where its current market cap is now. But if not, I mean, we're talking, I mean, it, it is the, the most asymmetric trade that has ever existed, probably, or at least existed anytime in our lifetime or our grandparents' lifetime. And so the simple math is if you are an institutional investor with a long duration um, uh, outlook, putting 1% of your assets in Bitcoin will increase your long-term return profile by orders of magnitude, even if it went to zero, even in all, you know, all those probabilistic scenarios where it could go to zero, um, just because of that, whatever, even if you mark a very low probability 
you know, a sub 1% chance that it does, you know, go over a million dollars for Bitcoin or, or, or even more, just that, that one probability weighted outcome increases your, your kind of average expected return uh, tremendously. So it does become irresponsible at some point not to invest in Bitcoin. I do think, I don't know if we're, I, I do think some really forward thinking managers, asset managers, you know, of course are there. Um, and, and by the way, those kind of asset managers, that's a long process. That's an 18 month process. That's not like, hey, you know, I get it now. Let's, you know, they have lots of, speaking of fiduciary, they have lots of people they have to convince right. to, get, to get there. And I think that's what a lot of Bitcoiners may be missing. You know, that process is going on probably right now. And, and a lot of those investors don't care that Bitcoin went down 20, 30, 40, even 50% in the interim. I mean, great, fine. They, they can buy cheaper when they finally are approved, but they're thinking 10, 20 years down the road. Well, that's why I think the narrative plays so much on a dynamic like that, because, you know, inherent in a fiduciary duty is a value judgment on how you, on how you execute it. Right. And so like you're, you're, held, you're only held to it as far as your own best judgment will allow you to be. And so once the the narrative of Bitcoin really starts to emerge and more and more people get it. And that kind of snowball effect happens. And I think, you know, naturally you'll see more pressure, the conversation shift to, to the fiduciary responsibility of holding Bitcoin, if not, you know, going full spec attack, like, like Sailor has done. But I want to ask like, so you operate still in that world. Two questions about that. One, you know, how many of your peers get Bitcoin and you're obviously super orange filled now and probably want to talk about it all the time. And you're probably the Bitcoin <laughs> guy and all that jazz. So what's that dynamic like? And two, what, what is it like to still have your day job be in a system that, you know, is completely perverted, corrupt, you know, days are numbered sort of thing. But obviously you're in a, you know, as you were saying, you're in a position to basically take advantage of the perversion and how messed up it all is like, What's it like for you to be orange pilled, but still be, you know, fully in the, the other world? Oh, that's a tough question. And I have to be a little careful um, how I respond, given my own, uh, sure. my own, my own kind of uh, fiduciary responsibilities. Um, but I will say this, it is, to me, it is overwhelmingly obvious that the future of finance, even I know DeFi is a very loaded word and I don't even mean DeFi within the current kind of system that's existed since 2020's DeFi summer and all of the kind of casino DeFi that went on on Ethereum. I actually think, not to go off on a, a side tangent here, that a near future narrative for Bitcoin, a new use case that people will start getting excited about with Bitcoin will be DeFi. Um, and, 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 and or, or the stack, you know, the, the stack of layering that's starting to be better understood and start to really develop its own network effects, of course. Um, <clears throat> Lightning is starting to, to become more robust of the network and um, things, you know, applications that are built on top of Lightning, such as Strike, are, be, are gaining uh, a, lot, a lot of traction in terms of how, uh, especially the speculative attack can be conducted um, on a nation state level, you know, against, against the kind of uh, dollar system and, you know, as a global reserve that a lot of these nation states are forced into. Um, but to answer your question, it, it's difficult because once you see, 
it, it, like that, that whole concept of the orange of the orange pill. And I, and I like I like to use like a slightly different analogy. There's um there's a writer David Foster Wallace uh, who wrote this great book called Infinite Jest, and um, it's a good book. But actually, one of my favorite things that he's ever said was on a uh, is in a commencement address he gave called this is, and it was a joke he talked about where this is water and I'm going to probably butcher the joke but it's essentially um, you know two fish swimming swimming by and some some older guy some older fish swims by them and he goes how's the water boys and you know they look at each other afterwards as the guy passes and they say what's water you know so um, when we are all swimming in, in a current or in an ocean that we've been in for our entire careers um, it is often hard to see that there's something outside of that. And then once you do, it's very hard not to see that you're swimming in this polluted water. <laughs> um, and so, yes, it does become difficult. And, and one of the reasons why I started communicating and writing more um, was because I was already doing that internally. I was already trying to orange fill colleagues and friends within the industry. Um, I was trying to just give back for free all of the months and months of research I had done on my own and speak in the language of Wall Street people that I know need to be spoken to in that language um, to, to better understand it. I mean, I, you doing what you do in, 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 this, in, this, in this landscape, you're talking to people all different walks of life. And, and I'm sure you have to tweak your message when you're talking about the subject to adhere to the background of the people you're, you're discussing this with. So if you're talking to a developer or a miner or just a complete novice who knows nothing about finance, technology or anything, who just needs to, to be kind of, to understand why Bitcoin is important, you need to talk on a very kind of basic, you know, high, high level. You basically need to tweak your arguments to adhere sure. to their, their thought process. And so I was trying to do that um, within the world of finance. And I also started to see that in the Bitcoin community, as I started kind of lurking on, on crypto Twitter, I started seeing that there was um, a little bit of a a little bit of a hole there in terms of some of the, the communication that was being lost or, or oversimplified when it came to some of these discussions that could bridge what Bitcoiners knew and what some of the just experience in, in finance had taught me over the years and kind of bridge the two. Um, and so I'm enjoying doing that. I look forward to doing more of that. And, you know, I'm, I've, I've started working um, to a greater degree with Bitcoin Magazine to do, to do that uh, and going forward. And some of the ideas we've kind of talked, all, talked about today, and I've gone off on a couple of tangents, um, are, are aspects of, of other kind of pieces I'm trying to work on and thoughts I'm trying to work on. But, but within Wall Street, I have definitely noticed, to answer your question, a, a greater interest in DeFi than in Bitcoin because it's a shiny ball. It's yeah. this technology, right? Like people love to talk, I mean, as we know, in 2017, there was blockchain, not Bitcoin. And people on Wall Street love to think that they're smarter than the next guy. Exactly. And so the way to be smarter than the next guy is to say, well, Bitcoin is simple. Bitcoin is simple. It's digital gold. What's more interesting than that is like all these use cases and disruption. You know, people love these catchphrases. Oh, we're going to disrupt finance. But um, I think they don't realize that they're starting from the opposite direction. You got to start from the ground up. And all of those applications will all eventually be built on top of 
Bitcoin and, and, um, and, and at the actual network effect, we talked earlier about network effects, the actual network effect, this is what I love, um, Idan Yago of Sovereign talked about this recently, and I thought it was such an important point, which is that the network effect is, the, is, is based around the asset itself. ETH doesn't have a network effect. Ethereum has a network effect because it, it created an environment that attracted the developers. So that did create a network effect for a time, but that is not a, uh, that is not a sustainable network effect, right? Because eventually, if you can't scale, developers eventually start to get frustrated and they move elsewhere. So it's just kind of like how, how social networks, you know, before they fully scale can, can easily, you know, crumble. And then how, how a social network like MySpace was able to be completely usurped in within, I don't know, a 12 month period by Facebook um, because of certain mistakes and certain inabilities to scale or adapt. But if your network effect is based on an actual asset that has this intrinsic value, that is much more sustainable. And so I think that's what a lot of people miss when, they, when they're looking for the complexity. You know, because Bitcoin is very complex deep down, but it, on a surface level, is very simple. And, um, and I, I think, you know, a lot of Wall Streeters want that complexity and, and, and kind of, you know, they'll, they'll make their way back. But I think, you know, so I've, that, that's a frustration that I've run into in some of my conversations. How it, um, achieves, how it achieves what it does is, is complex, right? But as we've been discussing, like what money is, is so insanely simple, right? It's just meant to communicate preferences of people and, you know, reduce uncertainty and, you know, uh, allow you to store your time for the future and all these things. And I, I love how humility is such a critical component to believing or seeing that something so basic can be so profound. And I think that's why a lot of the Wall Street bros don't get it, because let's be real, like they're not they're not considered the most humble group of people in the world, right? They're kind of mm -hmm. like, you that's know, very true. E kind of egotistical and arrogant sort of crew, at least that's the perception. And it makes no wonder they they go for the shiny ball, right? Where they also think they can make a quick buck rather than something that's simple but profound that will not only, you know, improve their situation and their returns, but you know, you know this, like most Bitcoiners could probably make money outside of Bitcoin. You know, the, 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 the returns on Bitcoin will be stellar, of course, and have been in many cases. But, you know, this is a, a movement far greater than any one Bitcoiner. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners see it that way, you know, that this is a this is important thing for humanity. And, you know, the Wall Street bros are not typically in the category of people that, you know, care too much about that component of things. Yeah, and and this gives this gets back also to our conversation about anti-fragility and the, and that fiduciary responsibility point that you, that you noted, because I think at the end of the day, despite some of these kind of moderate orange pilling I've been able to do with some colleagues and and friends in the industry, if you don't do the work yourself, you know you are going to have your your resolve tested. Right. And that's what the volatility does, right? As we know, right? And that I've seen just in the last few months, I've seen that resolve tested and I've seen many of those people bail. Yeah. Because I think at the core, so many people, while they get it and they get it on a very kind of high level and then, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. Digital gold, blah, blah, blah. When shit hits the fan, 
they're like, ah, oh, it's just, they, they're like, yep, it's a bubble. Like, I think everyone <laughs> on a surface level is waiting constantly over 10 years to prove that Bitcoin was in fact a tool of bubble or something. And, um, and that's where the anti-fragility comes in because while there are bubbles in Bitcoin, and that's, I, I don't think, I think it would be intellectually dishonest to, to try to counter that argument. First of all, bubbles are really valuable. Bubbles bring inevitable. critical capital into a burgeoning new industry. Of course, eventually that creates short-term excess but over the long run, you know, the internet had a bubble, but the internet didn't go away, right? Like, so um, in fact, without that bubble, the internet may have not had the robust um, kind of infrastructure that would have been necessary for it to scale later on when, those, when it actually caught up to the innovation that occurred down the road um, because people got ahead of themselves in terms of their pulling forward that you talked about it earlier, pulling forward the future into the present. That's kind of what a bubble can do sometimes. Um, so, so Bitcoin, of course, can go through those, those ways, but there's so many people who think, ah, this is it. This is the moment it's done. And every time that, that happens, and that's also important, just like the bubble is important, the popping of that bubble is important because what happens is it doesn't die. And that, that proves to maybe those, those people you said who were a little more humble to, to think objectively, say, ah, I was wrong. Yes, maybe it was a bubble, but look, it's still here. It's still pumping. It's still churning. There's still innovation occurring on it. It's still surviving through this kind of cyclical period um, of lower demand. And, the, and the, the entities on the network are still growing day over day. Like, oh, this is interesting. I mean, that's kind of what drew me in. I mean, a tulip bubble didn't occur five times. It occurred once yeah. and that was over. I mean, the, so the analogy is, as we know, is ridiculous, but um, and it was also like the tool bubble actually was like very small. It, it, it's been his, history like has made it a much eight, bigger nine deal. Months or something like yes, that. Yes, you know, and like I think most people in Holland actually like didn't even know about it or didn't really experience it. It was like, dude, it was. Yeah. Imagine being like Nuriel or Hanky, any of these guys. They're literally calling Bitcoin a bubble at ten bucks, and then still at you know 30 k. I mean, yeah, like it's said, the old broken just, clock. It's yeah. pure intellectual dishonesty and, and Bitcoin arrangement system, syndrome and mental gymnastics and all that jazz. But I think the but, point- But those are the, you know, those right. are the, yeah. And those are the people on the extreme end who have no intellectual uh, flexibility. Right. And that's fine. Like they're going to kind of go the way of the dinosaur, but th there's most people who are somewhere in between. And those people might be skeptical and maybe they didn't do the work this cycle, but they listened to a buddy like me kind of tell them to buy some. They did it. They lost faith. But next time around, when Bitcoin is inevitably still here, they will give it a deeper look and they will go down the rabbit hole themselves and they will have the same conversation with someone else and so on. And this is how kind of the network grows organically over time. And that's why, you know, through all of these trials and tribulations, if it just doesn't die, it will inevitably grow. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Um, that might be a good place to put a pin in this, man, unless you have any other uh, things you wanted to discuss. Um, no, this is, this is good for today. I know, we, I know I've been rambling for a while. I'll give, no, no, uh, it's, I'll it's give your years a break. It's been great. I, I look forward to uh, doing another one in the future when, you know, you've written some more articles and hashed out some of these ideas. And I, like, I think, 
I think this is really, you know, the, in particular, the Bitcoin information theory and, and talking about money as information is something that, you know, in Bitcoin land, we'll probably be doing more of and trying to push it into normie world because it's so simple, but it's, you know, like we were discussing with Hayek, it's, it's still far away from people's consideration or, or how they're looking at this. So I think it'll be a, a yeah. topic of, of much I, discussion. I agree. I, I agree. And, and just to add one quick point to that is that as, as I mentioned before, as peer-to-peer -peer technology and innovation starts to really compound and the need to specialize further, the need for people, people in their jobs to be able to specialize and have micro tasks and to be able to be more malleable and adaptable in the work they do, in the professions they have, um, become so much more vital and su such a bigger part of what we consider uh, an employee to be or a, a person's job to be um, as that definition changes, which it inevitably will more, then we will much more start to focus on a money that can scale that. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a way in which information and Bitcoin's ability to, to help information scale in a, an efficient manner will, will become much more appreciated. So I think that's, an, you know, I agree that that's a topic that should, should warrant a little more discussion. 100%. Um, where can people uh, find your writing, connect with you on Twitter, all that jazz? You want to direct people anywhere? Yeah. So uh, I'm on Bitcoin Magazine. I'm Aaron S. You can find my articles there. Um, like I said, I have a couple more that are kind of in the pipes um, on Twitter. Um, I've just I've kind of neglected Twitter for a long time and I've decided to uh, to kind of give it a go. So I'm uh, Ludi, uh, at Ludi Magister, L-U-D-I-M-A-G-I-S-T-R is my handle. Yeah, that's the best way to reach me. Oh, man. Well, look, I appreciate you taking the time for the chat and uh, look forward to the next one. So uh, take care. Likewise, John. Have a good one. See you, brother. Bye.